Hi, and welcome to the second chapter, the podcast where Kristen Duffy, the founder and producer behind Slackline Productions, that's me, talks to women who started the second, third, or even fourth or fifth chapter in their lives and careers after the age of 35. If you're enjoying the second chapter, remember to leave us a rating or review. It helps others to find us, and then they can enjoy it too. Hello, and welcome to the second chapter, a day early this week. I don't usually think of myself as a romantic, but I've been told otherwise on the podcast, and I loved Rebecca's story of not just finding a career path, but also her first real love after 35. So, old softy that I am, I thought I'd share her story on Valentine's Day. You'll love it, whether you're a romantic or not. This is Rebecca Megson-Smith. Enjoy. I had gone from being somebody who never wanted to get married at all to being somebody who got married, divorced, and is now married again with two children. So, yeah, it's been a strange and long road. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I am very well, thank you, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, it took us a little while to get our schedules coordinated, so I'm really happy to finally be not not in the same room. I almost said in the same room. It's like I haven't lived the last two years. In the same virtual room. These are the only rooms we actually exist in, really, at the moment, isn't it? Well, it's changing. This is still the, the main place we're at, so yeah. Exactly. And it, it, I'm, I was just talking to somebody the other day and saying she was in Atlanta, and I was just like, in a way, there's such a joy that we wouldn't have gotten some of this if we hadn't gotten used to this life. Yes. Yeah, very the, much so. Yeah. Take the good with the bad. Absolutely. <laughs> All the time. Yeah. I'm going to very annoyingly, perhaps, quote you to you okay. before we get started. <laughs> you say about yourself, reading and writing have been my constant companions as far back as I can remember. As a child, I would read by stolen torchlight under the duvet or behind sofas at other people's houses when my parents were visiting friends. Small secluded places, marginal spaces, where this world and another could meet and coexist. I wrote. And then you talk about what you wrote. However, (laughs) that doesn't seem that's where your life started. You did all this as a child. And even if I'm not mistaken, through university, did literature and then went a completely different direction. Yes, I did. Let me tell you what happened. Basically, I was doing, I did my degree in English literature, which I absolutely loved, and doing a master's in journalism. At the time, it was in the 90s, and there was a lot of feedback that the industry didn't didn't really like academia, <laughs> suggesting that it, it knew how, how its journalists need to be qualified. And, and I had a real desire actually to do PhD in English literature because I'd really enjoyed the course and I just didn't want to leave university. I wanted to carry on. And I come from very sensible, grounded Northern parents who sat me down on January the 1st of my last year at, uh, at university doing my undergraduate degree. And they said, now then, love, what are you going to do when you graduate? And I explained I was going to do a PhD. And they said, how are you going to, how are you going to pay for that then, love? And I explained that there were some grants that I might get and that I could do some, some part-time teaching work, probably. I didn't really know and I wasn't going to worry about it. It would, it would all pan out. Um, and they seized upon the teaching element. They said, oh, why don't you get a teaching qualification? Why don't you do a PGC? My whole life, people had said to me, oh, you should be a teacher. Oh, because you're interested in English. Oh, I suppose you want to be a teacher. And I'd said, no. And then after a very long involved conversation on that January the 1st, I agreed to go and look into doing a PGCE. And so I took what was a sensible option and went and did a PGCE at Oxford University and became a qualified secondary school teacher. Three weeks into that course, I I realised I hated it and um, (laughs) had just come out of the system to then find myself on the other side of the desk being the teacher it was just really galling. But I didn't really know what to do about it because I felt committed to the course and my parents were quite committed to me being committed to the course. And so I stuck with it and I, and I completed it, which um, I suppose is in its own way quite good. And I, I learned a lot through it. And then I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't feel like I didn't have the sort of the confidence or the resources really to reapply to PhDs. I looked at it again. The actual course I'd been interested in doing had, had um, disappeared. So I worked in theatre. I got a job working front of house at the Oxford Playhouse. And, and I did that for, I think, a period of about a year. And that's quite a good kind of between 
university and adult life job in many senses because mm. as we all know working in theatre the hours are atrocious and basically I was at work when anybody else was out playing and having a life evenings and weekends and the pay was really awful and I lived in Oxford and it was like like one of those Victorian kind of picture postcards I always felt like one of those children with her nose pressed up against the, um, the sweetie shop kind of going oh there's so many beautiful things you could do in Oxford if I could just afford to do anything else. and so the financial imperative drove me to get a proper job and my first proper job was working for um, actually a startup company and I basically became the office manager and I did that for about 18 months and what I discovered during that period of time is that I had a really good head for numbers, I was very good at finance and I was very good at uh, operating Excel spreadsheets as much as anything, numbers and data was something that I could do. The other thing that had happened in and amongst all of this that I've skated over and one of the other triggers for leaving the Playhouse was that my dad died when I was 22. So that sort of changed things for me as well. So my dad died in the January of 2000 and I was working at the Oxford Playhouse and obviously working front of house, you're on display all the time and it was quite a sort of difficult emotional time and this sort of constant pressure of putting on a a game face and being a happy chappy was I found quite challenging and quite wearing. Was it something that kind of came out of nowhere or was it a long-term thing? Yeah so it's one of those funny things it was almost like a long-term car crash waiting to happen. When I was 17 my dad had been diagnosed as having a faulty heart valve and it was advised that he have a, a heart operation go up to London and have, have a heart valve replaced and at the time he was also self-employed and didn't want to take a break from work in order to do that and so postponed the operation and kept postponing the operation and they were able to support him with medication and actually just at the point in time that he contracted pneumonia and then became ill and then was inoperable on we were just moving to that point where he was going to go and have the operation so it's the great kind of irony really that yeah. at the point in time where we thought oh we're coming to the end of this we're going to have the operation everything's going to get better that winter he contracted pneumonia and then went into hospital and then his whole system became so weakened that he, he died but actually my mum and dad were living in Cornwall at the time and he'd originally gone to hospital in Truro and then Truro had transferred him up to Derriford in Plymouth which would be where he could have this heart operation and he was even on the board even despite having the pneumonia he was on the board for a long time to have the operation Christmas in the year came in there wasn't enough staff around there were fewer operations happening he got weaker and weaker and then by the time everybody came back and took a look at his records it was like oh no if we operate on you that's not going to work at all so they just decided not to which was in it was was yeah just devastating actually for the whole family and that was very unexpected so it was one of the difficult things at the time that people were like oh but you knew your dad wasn't very well and it's like yes but he did go into hospital to have a heart operation we weren't expecting him to go into hospital and not come out and it's as someone who's recently a year ago now lost my dad no matter how old you are it's traumatizing of course but to be 22 and be in this vulnerable position already age-wise and what am I doing with my life-wise it definitely makes things well I don't want to judge how sad people should be but it does seem like it would just be so much harder at such a young age yeah. Yes. One of the things I think is really interesting looking back on it now is that at 22, you think you're grown up. Uh, and everybody else thinks you're a grown up too, actually. Like the whole world responds to you as though you are an adult. And yet, actually, as you've just alluded to, I have a suspicion it doesn't matter what age you lose your parents at. I think it still sends you straight back into a, a a sense of feeling very child and yes. small and not sure of the world and your place in it. I think it does all of those things. Like I remember very distinctly my mum understandably took it very badly for, for all sorts of reasons. Just was devastated by grief, utterly devastated by grief and, and fell apart in a very big way. And I remember walking the streets of Oxford in these dark bitterly cold January nights really feeling half orphaned and, and that being a really clear sense of not having any parents almost because my mum was in such a state of collapse and there was that sense of who do you talk to I actually went to the doctors at the time thinking that um, I could go and see a counsellor because I felt very guilty about talking to my friends about it I felt like I'd um, spent all the credit there as such and I couldn't I, I didn't feel I could talk to my mum and my sister about it because they were also dealing with their own grief as well 
And um, the doctor said to me that um, he thought I was suffering from depression, which is a common cold of the mind. He took a book down from the shelf to explain to me this. And um, that there was a waiting list of at least six months to see counsellors in Oxford. And after that time, I probably wouldn't need it anyway. So there's no point putting me on the waiting list. And he then took one look at me and said, I doubt you can afford to go private. So um, can I prescribe you some Prozac? And I said, no, I, I don't want drugs. I want, I want to talk to somebody. Well, if you're worried about drugs, have you thought about St. John's Wort? You could take that. I don't, I don't want to take anything. I just want to be able to chat to somebody. And he didn't have anything to offer. He just suggested, having flicked this book at me, that I go down to Blackwells and buy myself a book on understanding grief and depression. <laughs> How was that? And I, I left, I left the GP feeling, yeah, less than um, less than well served, shall we say? So yeah, yeah. yeah, it was very upsetting. And at this period of time, I met one of the guys that I was working with at the Playhouse. Was a friend of mine, and he and I became closer. And over the sort of spring, summer, we got into a relationship together. So by the May, June time, we were seeing each other. His mum was not very well. She'd had cancer for many years. And so it felt like we had a connection in terms of him having some sense of understanding mm. some of what I'd been through. And that was very powerful in its own way. There was a sense of an understanding. And actually going back a little bit in those dark days when the doctor couldn't give me anything, and I felt I'd spent all my credit with friends I had one particularly dark Sunday afternoon where I went through my my little black book effectively and I called every friend I knew and nobody was in can you believe it on a Sunday afternoon nobody was in because I thought I should reach out I should talk to somebody I remember going back to my room and just feeling really miserable and then this guy just appeared on the doorstep you know he was passing and he said did I want to go out for a drink and that was the beginning of, of us having a kind of a connection he turned up a bit like a knight in shining armor forgive the cliche at a point in time when I felt particularly low and lonely and at that age it does feel sort of like oh it must be meant to be because he's here just when I need someone exactly and I'm not gonna lie I was a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer still am to be fair and so was he and he had a very he had a dress sense very much akin to Angel and uh, (laughs) arrived with this kind of long flowing leather jacket kind of and he had dark Look back hair so yeah there was a very kind of there, there was all sorts of things that went in with any kind of romantic notion that might exactly. uh, come to mind so anyway um by so we started going out by the summer and and actually as things happened crazy things that you do that you shouldn't do really the lease on the flat that my best friend and I were renting was due up in the September uh Tom's Tom lived in a house that his dad owned that he rented out to other people. Those people were moving out in September. So my, my best friend and I moved into his house in the September. So we'd been seeing each other about three months and then moved in together, which was all sort of very intense very quickly. But it, it seemed fine. Why not? Mm-hmm. Why not? And then by the December, the cancer had come back for his mum and she was very ill and then she died. So by that stage, we were then, I think there was a real kind of cementing of us being what I often think of in, in, in uh, retrospect as sort of two shipwreck survivors. No idea how we were going to navigate the world, but we'd had these terrible things happen to us. And the only thing we knew is that we had each other kind of thing. So yeah, so that sort of happened. <clears throat> and uh, Tom had wanted to be, was doing lots of acting and filming at the time. And, and had wanted to go and had a place at, at RADA, but wasn't supported financially to go and do that. And so decided that he was going to do a degree in the classics down at Exeter University. And so we just up to moved and I moved down to Exeter, uh, just outside of Exeter with him, with a view that I would work and support him through his degree. And then once he completed his degree, he would work and support me in writing, in my writing endeavours, in having the time and the space to, to devote myself to the thing that I most cared about. We moved down to Devon and I got a job working for Reuters as a uh, market analyst because it had turned out during this other office job that I'd picked up in Oxford that I was very good with numbers and I understood the financial markets because of the nature of the product that the company was creating. And yeah, so I'd started out in Reuters as a, as a market analyst and then for the next nine years, went up and up the greasy pole. There's no real clear story. It's just a lot didn't happen. I think a lot of it is not having the confidence. And it is one of the biggest things that I would say to anybody who wants to do anything, whatever their dream is in their early 20s, just do it. Find 
whatever way to do it however small don't give up on it because you can get sidetracked for a really long time that definitely happens you take a job with the thought that this will get me through the next year or this will get me through the next couple years this is what i'll do when i'm supporting someone or when i'm not sure what i want to do and nine years later I don't think you can recognize it as you're living it, but I definitely think in your 20s, you're still in that place of kind of, I suppose, immortality. There's always tomorrow. There's always next week. There's always next year. You feel that time is expansive at that point in time, I think. However frustrated you might be about what you're doing, I, I, you still think that all the things that you want to do, there's always going to be enough time to get around to doing them. And I do think that is something that changes as you get older when you're like, damn it, I think I might need to crack on with this. Yeah, maybe it's time for me to make that decision or that change that I've thought of for so long. I mean, in the same way, I felt absolutely fine smoking throughout my 20s, whereas you think, ah, like, that's a terrible thing to do. But at the time, you're like, oh, well, you know, I'll give up in a minute. Um, so, yeah. So I know that Tom slash angel romantic dream was not actually the romantic dream. I don't know exactly what happened. I just know that it didn't last quite the nine years that the job did. Oh no, the job, the job, the dog, and in fact, the kettle that we were given as a wedding present all outlasted the relationship by quite some considerable uh, length of time. Yeah, so we, we moved down to moved down to Devon, and you have to also look at this very much in the context of. Here was a guy who had who also wasn't sure what he wanted to do with his life, who also had, in many senses, walked away from dreams, repurposed himself around what felt like a more kind of sensible way of working or, or being. And he had gone to Exeter University, he hadn't had a brilliant first year. In fact, he, he didn't complete his first year. He then decided he didn't want to do a degree. He wanted to do um, something else entirely, countryside and wildlife management. So he went to... A different, a different college in order to do that, signed up to a two-year course, got very close to completing that two-year course and decided that actually the way to get a job in countryside and wildlife management was to do lots of volunteer work and so then gave up the course and went and did volunteer work for a period of time. And, and the whole time I'm working at, at Reuters and sort of nine months into the job, actually at, a very, at the point in time when I'm thinking, well, I can do this data thing, but it isn't really what I want to do. Um, I'm going to apply for some other stuff and try and get out. My team leader turned to me and said, "Have you? There's, there's a team leader position going. Have you thought about applying?" And I just thought I was crazy. I was very much in my head the bookish guy in the corner. The idea of me being in any kind of leadership position just seemed completely ridiculous and laughable. But she had suggested it. There was, of course, a salary uplift that went with it. And I think I was very flattered by the fact that um, it had been suggested to me. So, well, okay, I'll apply for it. Why not? Kind of thing. And and that's when I started to move into management. And and I had, in many senses, there's no two ways about it. I had a phenomenal career at Reuters and was very well recognised. And I was on every kind of talent uh, management program. And I was regularly promoted. So I was team leader, and then I. Uh, became regional head and then I became global head and in the end I was responsible for sort of 450 uh, a team of 450 people worldwide and I did lots of travel and the job was very involved or consuming in many senses and also every time I got more money and that was really helpful because <laughs> yeah. I was the only person working and earning any money and so there was mortgages to pay and there were yeah, there's a lifestyle to feed. When you say, you know, about being younger and feeling like you have all the time in the world, and it makes me think that in addition to that, there's always that thing that kind of keeps you going in the job that maybe isn't what you want. Any kind of promotion, flatter, like the ego behind that. Huge. The money, because it's like, well, I'm working and they're paying me and they're paying me more. <laughs> I got to keep doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the travel as well, I suppose, might have been a part of it. So it yeah, I was working from time to time in the, in the office in Times Square in New York and I worked in London a lot and I worked in Singapore and I went to India and it was I had such a lot of sort of opportunities to travel and any kind of corporate work I think keeps you really busy and so you're busy so you're just doing it and then you're tired and then you go to sleep and then you start again and you just keep 
doing it basically so yes so that's so that happened and in and amongst all of that Tom and I got married and eventually after the sort of working for doing a volunteer working in countryside and wildlife management we we did have a bit of a break point where I was could you just get a job please just get a job and and I I guess throughout all of this time I had I kept I kept trying to to cut out again and to do other things so I remember that I had whilst I was a team leader I'd requested could I do a nine day fortnight so I could have a day of fortnight that I could devote to writing and it was refused and I had started to do an online course in creative writing with Lancaster University and just as I was getting that underway I got promoted and then I just didn't have the time to do the course and so that that got put to one side and so there were constant little things that I was trying to do to direct me back and there is that fatalistic element that earlier in terms of relationships I think is there with jobs where I know I certainly spent a lot of time if it's meant to be it's meant to be and Mm. the fact that something's come and pushed it out of the way means it's not meant to be right I'm not sure I actually agree with that entirely anymore but it was at the time it felt like the fates were pushing me in one direction and and I think I just sort of oh yeah I'll do that then yes so all of that happened not quite I, I it must have been in the 2007 we had a, we had a little house together and we decided that we were going to sell the house and this was a bit of a a bit of a change point he'd actually got a job and was working for the was working for the nhs was working for the ambulance service and was quite interested in retraining to become a paramedic and and we were working out and i was right at the heart of this flurry of lots of kind of promotions and flattery and and what have you with, with with my job and we were working out should we move to london what should we do blah 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 anyway one thing we did know that we were going to do was sell the house and the initial de- decision was to just sell the house and then sit on it and figure out what we, we didn't need to rush into buying anywhere else however we sold the house we were in the estate agents and we just happened to glance uh, along the, the prospectus for other houses and saw another house that we immediately both fell in love with went to view bought the house moved in the december of 2007 and Almost all around that time of selling our house and then moving into this other house, there were, in retrospect, kind of warning signs. I really loved the house. And so I remember having this conversation saying, well, this is basically the forever house, isn't it? And he turned around and looked shocked and horrified like hell. And so I was surprised there was a disconnect there. And then we moved in and it was a very big house for two people. And so... Uh, I had a room and he had a room that were like our offices, I suppose you'd call mm-hmm. them these days. But he had his books in his room and I had mine in my room. And um, and just very gradually, even as those first few weeks as we're settling in, we start to live slightly separate lives. And yeah, we hadn't been moved in for uh, more than, I think, three or four weeks when he went out on a night out, very unusual, but went out on a night out and was there'd been a really funny vibe between us in the day I'd actually driven to work and I couldn't tell you why I just cried all the way on the drive to work just sobbed my heart out Mm. and I didn't know what was wrong I just knew something was wrong and then that night he didn't come home which I wasn't expecting him to but then it got later and later and I tried to call him and message him and because it was getting to one o'clock in the morning and it was just supposed to be going to the pub for a few drinks and the bite to eat after after work so it felt like this was peculiar and uh, yeah he eventually phoned me back at sort of half past one in the morning and we had this really strange conversation where he basically said, I, 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 don't, I don't love you, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And that was that over the phone. So yeah, so that relationship came to an end. At the time, was it something you said you had this like almost premonition that was going to happen, but was it, you know, complete devastation for you or was there a little side of you that kind of went, maybe it wasn't working anyway. I'm going to answer that indirectly because what's really interesting that there were all sorts of indicators along the way. I remember when we got engaged. I remember telling people that we got engaged, ex- terrified, expecting people to say, what? For lots of reasons, <laughs> not least of which I had strong feminist principles against marriage at that point in time. You'd think somebody might have called me out, but nobody did. Oh, that's lovely. I didn't think we were particularly well suited uh, and again, I was waiting for anybody to just call me out and say, okay, we need to have a chat about this. And nobody did. Everybody was just like, oh, that is just perfect. People love a wedding. People love that. I don't know what it is, but it's like somebody gets engaged and it's suddenly like, ah, every feminist principle seems to go out the window half the time. So I'm not surprised. 
anyway. Yeah. So nobody called me out. And then I remember driving. My One of my friends was driving me uh, to have my head on on the day of the wedding. And I, and I felt really not okay. Like, this is it. This is actually really it. You know, this is properly commitment. And I did say, oh, God, I said, this is the day that me becomes we. And she just went, oh, that's so beautiful. And I was like, that wasn't how I meant it. But the whole world is really confident that this is a really good thing. And I think an, an enormous amount of everything that happened to me and through me uh, and even the decisions I made in my 20s were heavily laced with just a lack of confidence that was just the biggest thing and I, and I spent so much time assuming that everybody else knew more and knew better and lots of people did say to me oh he's so lovely you're so lucky and so I had that real sense of I clearly don't know that I'm onto a good thing I need to reshape my thinking on this so my doubt never um, was there very early on, as I su- probably suspect his was. And I feel like we got caught up in this sort of, oh, we've been together for ages. We should probably get married now. And but then also I came from parents who who had a, a real, like, a, God, it sounds a, a bit cliched again, but had a really strong marriage. They met each other when they were like 15 and 19 and they'd been together that whole time, which is one of the reasons why grief was quite so devastating for my mum, because right. her whole life had been um, with my dad. And they had a really, I'm not saying they didn't argue or, or, or have bad times, but they had a really solid relationship and a, and a really strong belief that they impressed on my sister and I that you make things work. No, it's not always easy, but you make things work. And yeah. so I think I brought that to the relationship, that sense of, okay, no, it's not perfect, but hey, what is perfect? And how do you make things like, let's just make it work. And that was actually my first response when he said he didn't want to, he didn't want us to be together anymore was, well, okay, we've been together for quite a while now. It makes sense that you know, we work things and reconsider things. And one of the things that I said, I've always said is I just think it was one of the bravest things he'd ever done because I honestly think I might have gone on for, I don't even know how long, but I might have gone on for years forcing the make this work mentality. So I am enormously grateful was I grateful in that exact moment no because any kind of rejection is just oh why don't you rip out all my internal organs and show them to me whilst you laugh at me he didn't do any of that that sort of sensation was there it was very powerful that sense of being rejected and having failed effectively so it was very it was very bruising I'm going to pick up on the having failed thing because I do think it's interesting that when a marriage doesn't work out that is what comes into your head. I've failed or we've failed somehow. Mm-hmm. And especially with the mentality of we'll make it work. Well, what did we do wrong to not be able to make it work? And I especially think because you were young, you had all these things behind you that you've explained. It's so not a failure, but it's so hard not to feel that way at the time. Yeah. Maybe yeah. the marriage as an institution failed, but you didn't fail. No, no, no. And I have to say that I don't think I thought how did we fail it was very clearly how had I failed it was very much my failure I had not done things and to be fair there was a little bit of I mean a there was a bit of truth in that but also there was a little bit of um we ended up in this really weird period where we were living together and we had we ended up having these really weird conversations where he would talk to me as though I were his friend and he was talking to his friend about the woman he was leaving so it's this kind of weird third person thing where he would be explaining to me what she slash I had done wrong effectively or what what hadn't worked because of the person that I was and I was being really like rational insanely rational and trying to be the supportive friend it was just bonkers when I look back on it but um it was what was happening at the time and my mum was devastated again that was the other thing that was that, that sort of added to that sense she just you know she, she was utterly devastated and couldn't we didn't I didn't tell anybody for we, need, we, we decided not to tell anybody for two weeks just to make sure that we weren't going to make this huge announcement and then for some reason reverse it and when we did tell people it yeah like I say my mum my was you're obviously not going to work tomorrow and I was like well, I've known about this for two weeks and I've been going to work for the last two I can't see why I wouldn't go to work tomorrow I don't I don't get that at all so she was really devastated so yeah so the it, marriage it I just have to say the marriage ended how did the greasy pole corporate job end yeah well you see it didn't for a while because actually there was that sense of 
that was the familiar and, and actually mm. I really invested myself like my work became my family and, and I think that's one of the things that's often overlooked when people talk about corporate work and corporate jobs because you do work around the clock and you spend a phenomenal amount of time with your colleagues even if they are in different locations and stuff yeah there was a great comfort and a great familiarity and also that whole flattery thing was enormously helpful at that point in time I carried on being promoted I carried on having opportunities to travel the world and to do new things and to be you know treated as somebody who was still special in some way and I think I really needed that and and so I didn't change that for, for the longest time what changed during that period of time was that I I started to do other things that were for me. So it was like, I think, um, nearly a, a two or three year period where I had to rediscover who I was because the one thing that happens when you get into a relationship is that you do become we, not me. You don't paint the walls bright colours. You go for the cream dream because that's the colour that's least offensive that you can both agree on. You don't put your art on the wall. You don't go to the clubs and groups that that call to you because you have a, a you have less less time and you're giving more of your time into the relationship certainly that was my experience anyway mm -hmm. so then it was who am I and all the time I've got ticking in my mind well I don't really necessarily want to be doing this job and this isn't really who I am okay but but who am I and that's when I had the strange strangest it was literally like a voice and I know I sound completely mad saying that but it was literally like a voice that said to me you should do act. I've never wanted to act in my life. Even when I worked at the Playhouse, I've never wanted to act in my life. And then as it unfolded, the local arts centre was putting on a show that autumn. And so I auditioned and I got a part and I started doing acting. And then I started to do more things in theatre. And so that started part of my life started to flourish. And I'd been really interested in environmental issues and climate change. I got very involved in groups related to that. The whole time I'm traveling the world with this enormous carbon footprint, but let's overlook that. And, and then suddenly uh, I had this month where basically I, I got on a plane and I, and I flew to Singapore and I worked in Singapore and I worked the Singapore day. And then kind of towards the end of that day, Europe came online and I worked the European day and I stood and I worked at the beginning of the American day. And then I slept for about four or five hours and then I got up and I did it again because by this stage I was global head of and and I did that on repeat for five days and then at the weekend I was like well, I'm in Singapore I need to make the most of being in Singapore so I went to the tropical gardens and it was actually as I was walking around the tropical gardens I had this sort of going I don't need to do this I don't need to do this anymore I could just stop and that was really the, the, the triggering moment I then went on from Singapore and spent two weeks in India doing something very similar. Finally, in the January, I'd sold the house. I moved back in with my mum because I didn't know what I was going to do. I was probably going to leave the company, et cetera, et cetera. So I moved back in with my mum who lived in the same town. And that was all really, that was all really nice and fine. And then as the year started to unfold, my mum felt very tired. We put it down to age. She went and had some tests, thought her iron levels were low. She had some blood transfusions, slept for 36 hours straight after one of the blood transfusions, whereas they'd promised she'd be up and jumping like a spring lamb. Finally, after lots of appointments, we got whatever the full body scan is. MRI? Yeah. And she's riddled with cancer. And we discovered that she had cancer, I think, at the beginning of June. The primary was stomach cancer, but it had spread very rapidly throughout her whole system. And so that was the beginning of June. I had handed my notice in by this stage in time, but I'd given them seven months notice because I'm some kind of idiot who doesn't understand that when you've left, you've left. Within two weeks of the diagnosis, I was there. I was basically her primary carer. I got signed off work for that month. So even though I was leaving anyway, I, I got signed off to look after her and she kept just going down a level and down a level at quite a speed. They suggested she went into the hospice to just ascertain what her what level her meds needed to be at. And also, we were living in this like little Devonshire cottage, which was all tiny, narrow staircases and lots of different levels and, and what have you. They said we could get a wheelchair sorted out and a bed and ramps and things so that we could be a bit more comfortable there together. So I was trying to organise all of this. And... Um, she went into the hospice and just went down and down again and, um, and died within the week. So from kind of diagnosis to death was less than a month, basically. So it was all very sudden and shocking. I went back to work literally to clear my desk and to do final handover bits. 
and then just left. And uh, I took a sabbatical, I should say, at that point in time. And that had been the intention. I was going to have my base at mum's. I was going to be on sabbatical. I was going to go traveling. I was going to maybe rent somewhere up in, the, in Scotland or somewhere wild and remote and write the novel. It's still there as the thing that I'm going to go do. Mum was completely supportive of that. But then that all just sort of suddenly changed. I guess my, the next thing is you had this sort of plan that everything kind of, with the death of your mother, everything changes. What happened? After mum died, yes, I had friends and family, but also theatre and the theatre projects were an enormous kind of supportive community, a structure that, mm-hmm. that kind of um, held me and, and carried me through. And I was looking into, started to look into doing a course in stage management. And as it happened, got offered a place at Bristol Old Vic theatre school. So that was all percolating through. There was an opportunity to come and do some stage and production management for a show called Moby Dick that was produced by Dark Stuff Productions. And so that was how I got involved with Dark Stuff Productions and how I got involved in Bristol. And at that moment in time, I came to Bristol and I really felt like I'd found my tribe and I'd found my place. And I think one of the things that I probably need to add into this is that after the divorce and then the death of my mum and finishing this this job that had been my life for nine years um I kind of returned to being a 17 year old (laughs) again and that sort of quite nihilistic lifestyle as well if I'm being really honest so I moved to Bristol I started working in Bristol and then I figured I needed a place to live and one April evening I think it was knocked on the door of this house to to go and do a viewing slash have an interview because that's kind of how house shares work certainly in Bristol and the, the guy that opened the door was a, was a, a physicist named Dave who was doing his PhD at, uh, at the University of Bristol and he was extraordinarily friendly and welcoming and uh, and I moved into the house with him and two other guys and it was a party house there's no two ways about it it was a very it was a, an amazing kind of nine months I was doing the theatre work I, I got a kind of a part-time proper job as well because I needed to pay the bills and I was living this very teenage life, very late teenage, early 20s life again, basically. That is so fair for various reasons, because you'd been through a lot. But also, I'm just thinking about you in Oxford working with your nose pressed up against the glass while everybody else was having fun. And yeah, definitely. Yeah, I don't know. After my divorce, I feel like I had a moment that I was like, I just want to be out. I just want to have fun. I've worked so hard my whole life. I've been with this guy my whole life. So good for you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And Dave and I became really good friends. And there was there was just a, a real connection there. And that connection rapidly as anything that is infused with quite as much alcohol as was running through that house <laughs> will do quite rapidly transformed into us going out together and getting into a relationship together. And I think what was really amazing about that is that it it has in so many senses been an utterly transformative relationship it wasn't anything I was looking for it wasn't anything that I was expecting I hadn't come to Bristol thinking I'm going to find a relationship and very much so after the divorce I absolutely loved living by myself I loved being single and I couldn't imagine being in another relationship it wasn't anything that I was looking for and even the first one you said that wasn't really your plan that was uh oh okay this is what people do in a way yeah and I've had some really dark moments when everybody else was settled down and having babies and and living uh, a life none of that had really been what I'd ever imagined I'd be doing with my life but you know nothing I had imagined I was doing with my life was materializing anyway so whatever but I had some really dark moments where you do sit with yourself and just sit in a well of absolute loneliness and just think this is me now forever I'm just going to be me and I suppose there's an element of kind of once you've been there you've sat and stared into that darkness and it hasn't destroyed you in the way that you think it probably will there's something really very kind of grounding about that but anyway so I moved to Bristol move into this house have an amazing year and meet this amazing guy that I connected with in a way that I never had with any other relationship before because there was something about that friendship and that kind of connecting on a real it sounds really poncy, but on, that re- on a really intellectual level, like we had conversations that were 
really interesting, I suppose. I found him fascinating and I still do the way his mind works and how he thinks about things and what he knows. And we're able to talk at, at that level and at great length. So that was really special and different and also terrifying because actually I didn't know if I wanted a relationship, if I could do a relationship. Any of those things were also bubbling around in the background. And I was also grieving, like, hugely grieving my mum had just died the woman who was like sort of the pinnacle in my life in many senses she'd been such a powerful force and and I'd gone through this whirlwind experience of being a primary carer and being so responsible for 450 people at work responsible for my mum's care responsible sat by the bed at the hospice sleeping at the end of her bed every night all of that kind of thing yeah the one thing I knew even if I didn't even if I didn't want to have this as the knowledge I I know I knew that people left you I knew that you Mm. were abandoned ultimately there was only really ever you and so there 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 was a sense of at that point in time really feeling like I I maybe need to protect myself a bit this may not be like a good thing for me and actually as the year kind of wound on increasingly um it turns out in your (laughs) maybe not for everybody but it certainly turned out for me that I could have enough parties. (laughs) I could have enough of that lifestyle and I could just be like, okay, it's Wednesday evening. One of my housemates is playing drum and bass that is making the entire house shake. It's two o'clock in the morning. I would really like to go to sleep now. Mm -hmm. Um, At the same time, I was doing more proper work and I had started to do a master's in journalism and I was trying to take that course seriously and I was starting to actually sew together something about a direction for where I might go next. I ended up turning down the stage management course at Bristol Old Vic because I had thought I could pay for it with my pension from the corporate job because when I first started the corporate job, you could access your pension after five years of paying into it. At some stage, I had signed away the rights to do that and was duly told I couldn't pick it up until I was 62. And I figured at 62, I'd be too old to do stage management. (laughs) Anyway, so I had very sadly declined and the Bristol Olympic Theatre School were amazing. They, They offered me the course at a discount. They offered to try and help me find some funding. They were absolutely brilliant, but it was it was still trying to find um, several thousand pounds a year. And knowing that it was a very full-on, full-time intensive course, Mm -hmm. there wasn't an awful lot of time outside of that to also work to make money to be able to pay my rent. And then also, when was I going to get the writing done if I was doing this full-time intensive stage management course? Like, that was still there. It was still there. So Dave and I decided that we would move into a flat together, which was a a big, scary move, but also very lovely. And we did that. And then sort of from there, coming out of the party house, Dave finished his PhD. I finished my master's in journalism. I was doing some freelance work through Ridley Wrights, the company I I run. I also decided um, to get a part-time job working for Bristol University Press, which was then Policy Press, in order to stabilise our income. We were really happy with bobbling along together. And then out of nowhere, because at no point had we'd even, I have this really vivid memory of being at his sister's wedding very drunk saying to him, I can never do marriage, mortgage and children. Those are things I'm never doing. Oh, world, please laugh at me (laughs) with my two children and my mortgage and my marriage. Yes. Um, So he agreed and said, oh, that's fine. I don't need any of those things from you. Good. I'm glad we've had this conversation and that it worked out so well. So we were moving along fine and and everything was, was really nice. I don't think that we were looking for change but this this one day in in march we're driven to sussex where dave's family's from and on the way there we were listening to the archers on the radio it just happened to be on the radio at that particular point in time my mum was a big archers fan and i have on and off listened to the archers with degrees of intensity over the years myself and particularly it was a point of conversation that mum and i would have a lot of and I can't even tell you who now, but somebody in so a very uh, an important character that both mum and I knew died in the arches, and I felt absolutely devastated, double devastated that this character had died, but also that I wouldn't be able to have that conversation with my mum. Oh, and it had yeah. really kind of punched me in the in the chest. She we went to this birthday party. I drank too much. I got involved in a very political argument with somebody about politics and the welfare state anyway next morning woke up very hungover Dave went off to watch football with his dad and I sort of spent the day kind of lounging around in bed which sounds divine now um 
reading Thrive, actually, by Arianna Huffington. And, and, and I got to the part about service and I was like, I, I think like the bit that's missing out of my life, I need to, like from the night before and just feeling so churned up about my mum not being here still, maybe I need to go into hospices and read to people or, or write down their story. Or maybe I need to do something that is of service to other people. And Dave came back and I tried to explain some of this to him. And he listened and agreed and said that, you know, Yes. And he said, one of the things I've been thinking is, what if we were to have a family? And it's so funny. It's actually the choice of the word family that I think shifted everything for me because children, I, ch- children I have no interest in, but family, I'd been part of a family. It was a word that I could recognize and sort of mm-hmm. resonated with me. And, and for the first time in my life, it suddenly a door opened and I went, yeah, that is something I could do. And it feels like exactly the thing I want and need to do right now. And from there, we started to do sensible things, buy a house, get a mortgage. And then we had my daughter and then we got married and then we had uh, our son. And the rest is history, I suppose, or it's becoming history as it goes on. So I had gone from being somebody who never wanted to get married at all to being somebody who got married, divorced, and is now married again with two children. So yeah, it's been a strange and long road. Oh, you were 39 and 41 when your kids were born, right? And I That's think right. we were talking before recording about the idea that so many women or so many people in general, but especially women get to a point, especially in their 30s or even 40s, that they're just like, I haven't found someone. It's never going to happen. Or like you were saying, this kind of pit of loneliness. I'm just intrigued because in the same way that I feel like it's never too late to make life changes, career changes, life change is part of it. To say that I'm washed up at a certain age is so old fashioned, but yet I think it still happens. Yes, yes. And I think it's all pervasive. There is that sense of it's all over. I mean, I remember this, these dark nights of the soul of thinking this is it. And I remember very much kind of living in in Devon, whilst I had this great kind of community around me of of, of work colleagues, on a Friday evening, they all went home to their families and Mm -hmm. they all did their own thing, you know? I mean, so it was very lonely. There was nobody really to express those sort of that Friday night high, really, or just to hang out with somebody else. And and although in the main, most of the time that was absolutely fine, there, there was that sense of it all being over. And as I say, I moved to Bristol without any real intention of it it wasn't about finding a partner or family or any of those things. It was something I was doing because I was following the next obvious thing to do, it seemed to me. And I have an enormous sense of you just can't predict how any of it's going to go. I think there's a real thing about just being just open to everything and anything. I, I, I do feel like there's moments where you can choose to shut down and you can choose to give in to the idea that it's all over but what I really learned when I lived by myself was just the world became magical again in a way that I don't think it is when you live with somebody else particularly I think as a woman it's why solitude I think is extraordinarily important for women I think we need to have time by ourselves even if we think we don't want it even if we think we don't need it even if we think what we really need to do is go and hang out with some friends actually that time by yourself is so important because that's when you can start to hear your own voice. If I could change anything about my 20s, I think it would be to go and live by myself for a period of time because actually I went from my parents' house into university accommodation into living in a shared house with um, with, a, with a best friend into being in a house that was a relationship that meant I was cooking and washing and doing all the domestic chores that even if you think sharing them with a modicum of equality, actually you're probably carrying more of the load just by Mm. the sheer nature of where we are culturally and the programming that we as yet still haven't quite managed to overcome or undo, I don't think. And one of my most kind of glorious memories was a a few weeks after Tom left, I, I was sat in the kitchen having breakfast and I had a sense of something being missing. There was this sort of strange sense of what's missing? What's not the obvious thing of you know, there's not another human being in the house, but just something felt like there's something I ought to be doing. It's like my brain was saying, you're normally doing something right now and you're not doing it. And suddenly it came to me in a flash that I wasn't thinking and processing the thoughts and needs and desires of somebody else mm-hmm. and also then pushing 
what I needed and thought and desired through my understanding of what I thought they needed and wanted. It was a really kind of complex mental, emotional processing that I think we do as carers. Perhaps it isn't just a biological thing and it isn't about women, but certainly I think if you're a caring, empathic person, your experience of life is very permeable to the emotions and needs and wants and desires of other people. And so to be by yourself, that is the only time when you can start to hear the small voice that tells you what you need to do. And increasingly, we live in a, in a world in a society where we're stupidly busy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are no Sunday afternoons where everything's shut anymore. There are no stretches of time when we can get bored. And I mean, start to throw a couple of children, a dog and a cat into that. And I can assure you that I look back on those years, those three years when I was by myself as, as a great oasis in a, a, an otherwise very busy life. But we need that. I think that might be where confidence comes from and, and, and ability to know who you are and what it is that you really want to do. And those things are so important because without them, you do end up getting blown this way and that, I think, and following paths that might, you know, they're good paths. There's there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, you know, one of the things that happened to me is that when my dad died, I, I didn't have a credit card. I couldn't drive a car. I, I was the little bookish girl in the corner that didn't say boo to, the, to a goose. So when, when the doctors took me and my sister aside into a room and basically said, we're not going to operate on your dad. And we said, why not? And he, they said, well, he's not an emergency because he won't survive it. And basically, they said, we're just going to let him die. Yeah. I went mute. I went completely mute. It is, it is one of my sort of more shameful moments in my life that I'd been on the train on the way up with my sister, thinking up and talking to her very confidently about all these very clever things we would say and questions we would ask. And when they told me, basically, we're just going to let your dad die, I had nothing to say. I didn't know how to respond to it. Roll forwards 10 years, and I went to every hospital appointment and doctor's appointment with my mum, and I sat there and I said, I had the confidence of being a global manager. And I had this sort of, to who you're talking to, type arrogance to it. So I was able to really throw them questions, and I could drive. And I was well financed. I could support anybody and everything that was needed at that point in time. In many senses, that career had enabled me to make good on what I hadn't been able to do previously. Yeah, which is one of the reasons when you were saying in your 20s to grab something and, you know, time goes quicker than you think or you get down a path. There is something, whilst I don't necessarily believe in the meant to be necessarily, we do learn from everything that's happened to us, whether it's something like your dad dying when you weren't, well, we're never ready, much younger than you would have been ready, whether it's a job that you never thought you would have. There is, there's something that, whether it's meant to be or whether it's just the emotional maturity or the life experience we need to get through the next thing we find a way to use what's happened in our lives. Mm, Definitely. Yes, I agree. I've really loved chatting with you about your relationships, especially because I think I'm going to drop this right around Valentine's Day. So uh, love a little love story as well. (laughs) But before we go, I don't want to leave listeners going, okay, so she got this master's in journalism and what's happening now? (laughs) I know you're very multi-hyphenate in your career. So just in a nutshell, what's happening now? I'm now a writer, writing coach and theatre maker. Those would be the nutshells that I can can put out there. So um, I set up Ridley Writes initially as as a blog back in 2011. Hilariously, I set it up as a blog where I was really grateful for the fact that I could just put my thoughts out into the ether and nobody was going to read them. Nowadays, one of the things I do is I'm a writing coach, and so I help people to get a plan around what they want to do, you know, sort of thing I could have done within my 20s. Somebody who who cares about your writing project, who's able to help you enunciate what it is and help you figure out really basic stuff, like when you're going to get the time to do it and how you're going to set up a writing routine and, 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 and those sorts of things. And then I support people through the process of doing their writing. And that's one of the primary things that I do. I have to say, reading the quote that I started with, I grew up so loving books and writing. And I always say on the show, I'm not a writer, I'm not a writer. But reading that paragraph, I was like... 
I need to use Rebecca's services because there is a writer in me. And when you say like, where do you find time? And the really basic stuff, it's sitting down to do it. It's that space that you talked about. It was very Virginia Woolf when you were like, we need our own space. We need our own time. But I was like, hmm, writing coach. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. I set up that part of the business. So to begin with, Ridley Wrights was trying to work out what it was. But to come back to the blog point, what's really funny is when people come and talk to me today and they're like, oh, I want to write this blog, but what if nobody reads it? And I just, I always just end up in a loving and caring way, chuckling at that. Because for me, when I started blogging, The joy was that nobody was going to read it, whereas now we're very much driven by a a likes culture, aren't we? And and what's the point of writing something if nobody's going to read it? The point is writing something. Don't not write because somebody might not read it. This whole thing is completely faulty logic. But anyway, it is a a real kind of joy and privilege doing that. And And I set that part of the service up in order to do for others the thing that I needed myself. It's that whole thing, isn't it, that you're always your own first client. And and I, I also know that I can't I can't do the job I do unless I'm holding to those same principles, making sure that I have my writing routine in place, making sure that I'm turning up at the page, that I'm accountable for what I do. The sort of advice that I'm doling out is exactly the advice I'm giving myself and following myself. Another really key thing that I would say to to your point earlier, there's a brilliant quote by Glennon Doyle that she said once uh, a year or so ago, I think, which is, people who aren't writers don't spend any time in their day thinking about whether they are or not. And so if you think, if you ever have that thought, that idea, hi, you're a writer, come on in, let's see what happens next. When you said that, every hair on my head stood up and I was like, If not me, someone needs to hear that today because that's such a powerful thing to say. Yeah, isn't it just, yeah, yeah. So two more things. One is I want to call you out for a minute because you talked about Mm -hmm. accountability and you said one of the things you didn't want to talk about is that you're writing a second novel, but you didn't know when that was ever going to come to light. Very briefly speak to that, if you will, you don't have to, but a little accountability exercise for you. No, absolutely. So I had an idea for a novel back in 2017 when I was on maternity leave with my daughter, which I have, which again, I I will also call out, if you want to write anything, you need time to daydream. It's really important. And I am not remotely suggesting that maternity leave is a time when you just wander around daydreaming, waiting for the (laughs) news to fall. Far from it. But you are awake at strange times of day and night when nobody else is and there's not a lot to do. Your brain, I think, gets a little bit of a creative space that it might not otherwise have. For anybody out there struggling on maternity leave, there'll be some creative impulses working. Trust them. So, yeah, so I had the idea in 2017 and I, on and off, have been building on it. I wrote a version of it in 2020. I wrote several versions of it. I threw a cup of tea over a laptop. I hadn't backed anything up. I lost thousands of words. (gasps) Yeah, back your work up. I then started another version of it, which I think was better anyway, so that was fine. In November 2020, I completed that draft last summer. I have been working on and tinkering with the, not tinkering with actually, I have been ripping it to shreds and rebuilding it. And I am currently in the process of pulling a, a, a newer and hopefully more compelling plot together more complicated plot together for sure in order to start um diving into a rewrite on that i don't know when i'm going to finish the second draft but but i'm working on it i'm working but this on this isn't it. a pipe dream this is something you're doing so i'm glad that i asked yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've already just given me one of my very quote favorite quotes ever like i said there are definitely people that need to hear that at the moment but do you have another quote for me that you intentionally brought as your quote today Yes, which is quite funny because on and off I've been dismissing this idea that things aren't meant to be. But actually, one of the key things that I really do believe is that whatever's meant for you won't miss you, which I think, I sort of think is a really quote, but it isn't, is it? It's, it's, it's another uh, philosopher. Anyway, but I'm a great believer in if it's meant for you, it, it will be there for you. And if it's not meant for you, it won't happen. And that's okay. And both of those things are okay. And I think I find that an enormous gift of a quote because it certainly helps me to frame all the things that have happened to me in such a way that they were meant for me. It's not the same as being fatalistic, I don't think. But the things that have happened have brought me an enormous amount of often joy, as well as a lot of anguish and pain. 
but they've always brought me lessons that that I have found utterly invaluable in life and and I'm very grateful for them so yeah that's my quote when I think about the love and the anguish and the joy and the pain and really it's brought you and all of us it's brought you life because isn't that what life is it's not just happy times it's not just going down one path it's everything all combined into one big glorious mess really absolutely absolutely I couldn't agree with you more and I, there's so much oh god it sounds again a bit obvious and a bit cliche like we do again we live in a busy culture and we live in a culture that um prioritizes um and and puts happiness on the pedestal as being the thing that we should all be shooting after and actually i think wow we are these amazing creatures and we are full of such a wide variety of emotions and they're not there by accident each one of them has a place and has things to gifts to give us basically and things to teach us and things to show us and I think one of the things that I certainly try to do and and, and would like to be able to help my children to do is really be all of our emotions don't be Mm -hmm. scared and I think particularly as women like we're told that we're emotional and that's a bad thing screw it we're emotional that is a lot of data that is what emotions are there it's data and it's information and all of those things give us knowledge power and wisdom and we need to embrace them if we were always happy we would live very flat lives i think really absolutely thank you for sharing your knowledge power and wisdom with me and all of us today rebecca thank you so much for joining me it's been a joy thank you thank you for having me really enjoyed it thanks a lot Thanks again for listening. The second chapter is just getting started, so your subscriptions and five-star reviews mean so much. The second chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them, with a specific focus on women 35+. For more about Slackline, visit slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.